prayer, right? And we'll end. So, excellent. Man, thank you. The Lord certainly gifts his people in a variety of ways. And uh, it's our responsibility and our joy to uh, take those gifts and to use them for his honor and glory. So, uh, thank you to our musicians, um, just everyone that's participated this morning. Um, Open up to Mark chapter 6 this morning, and we'll finish this series up. Who then is this? As you're opening there, I think I've, I've told you all before, perhaps, about this series of books that I'm reading to our two oldest kids. Uh, it's a series called The Wing Feather Saga, and maybe some of before, um, but they've really enjoyed the books. I've really enjoyed the books. Uh, I have to exercise quite a bit of self-control to not go and finish reading the book after they go to bed, but so far I've been able to do that. Uh, and the books are largely about these three kids, and the kids are ages, I think, 9, 11, and 12 in the books. And they live in a fictional world, and it's a little like the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read that, it's a fantasy world. There's these different creatures who talk in the world and everything like that. It's maybe like the Lord of the Rings type of fantasy world. And in the first book of the series, you meet these three kids. And obviously, they live in this very strange world. But they seem to be very normal kids. And you think they're just, you know, you're run-of-the-mill kids in this particular fictional world. And they go and they stumble into this series of adventures. And it's fun and everything. But at the end of the first book, I don't want to ruin it if you've never read them, so sorry. Spoiler alert, here you go. At the end of the first book, you find out that these aren't just your your normal average neighborhood kids. These three are actually royalty and that they're uh, the sons and daughters of the king and the queen uh, of this land called Aniera. Now, through the rest of the books, once you know their identity, obviously you view them differently, uh, but it... Their identity and who they are changes how people respond to them throughout the rest of the books. I mean, once people know that they're royalty, they either believe that, they either acknowledge that, and they treat them accordingly, or they tend to deny that, and they don't really believe it, and then they don't act accordingly uh, when they they hear that news. Um, It's all about how they respond to this news that they've received. Some believe, some persist in what you could say is is unbelief. And honestly, that's a little bit like what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark so far. We're six chapters into this thing, and we've got this mounting evidence that is building throughout the book that Jesus is unique. Uh, He's not not normal in a lot of ways. Um, We've got mounting evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's the fulfillment of of Old Testament expectations and Old Testament hopes and promises. And so we see throughout the book of Mark so far that people respond to Jesus, some with faith and some with unbelief. Some persist in unbelief. And if you remember, if you were with us last week, we looked at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, and we saw two people who both responded to Jesus with faith. And that was really the point of the message last week was to learn from their faith and try to understand what real faith is and to respond in in much the same way that that they did. Uh, They believed the news that they had heard about Jesus and they acted accordingly in response to that news. And 
as you think about people responding to Jesus appropriately and in faith, you think back over the last couple chapters, it really does seem like that is the only possible way you could respond to him. I mean, we've read about Jesus having authority over nature when he calms the storms. We've read about him having authority over an entire legion of demons. We've read about him healing a disease that had persisted for 12 years that no human doctor could do anything with, but only made worse. And we've read about him bringing a little girl back to life who had died from sickness. And so when you see all that and you read that, you start to think that the only way maybe that people should and can respond, could possibly respond to Jesus, is to respond in faith, repentance and faith. And this passage this morning is going to help us to understand that's not reality at all. Uh, in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite many times. And our current series, you can see the sign up here as we've gone through this, is who then is this? And it's based on the question that the disciples ask in chapter 4 when Jesus calms the storm. They wonder, who is this? And every sermon, hopefully, has contributed a little bit more to our grasp and our understanding of who Jesus Christ is as presented in the book of Mark. And the call... The response that is demanded of us, as we've also seen in this gospel, is you respond to his authority, to his person, to the reality of who he is. You respond with with repentance and with trust and with faith in his person, in his ministry, in his work. Today, we're going to sort of get jerked back to reality here. It seems like Jesus is on this triumphal movement forward. And then today, we're going to read a story that... Uh, is maybe a little bit shocking. Not everyone is going to respond to these miracles, to his teaching, to the very clear evidence that's in front of them. Not everyone will respond to that with faith. In fact, many, many people are going to continue to persist in unbelief and are going to reject him. And they're not just going to reject him. They're going to be blind about it, completely blind. And they're going to be aggressive about the way in which they reject him. And we're going to see that today. So last time we learned about faith in chapter 5. I mean, that was kind of the key faith in Christ and what that looks like. And today we're going to learn about the opposite of faith, which is unbelief. And I'll explain the sermon title actually as we end today, and I think it'll make sense to you. But uh, as you're in Mark chapter 6, what we're going to see today is two descriptions of unbelief. So last week we talked about faith. This week we're going to talk about unbelief and what that looks like. And it'll be helpful to us to consider unbelief so that it will challenge us to believe, to do the opposite of this, to continue to press our faith into Jesus Christ's person and work. So two descriptions of unbelief that challenge us to trust and to believe in God's word. All right. Mark chapter six. And here's the first one of these. Unbelief rejects the knowledge that it has. Sometimes people will act like unbelief is a virtue, an honest virtue. And they'll say that it's an honest virtue, it's a good quality, because they'll say something like this. Well, we just, we don't know for sure. We can't really know for sure that Jesus was God's son. We can't have a hundred percent confidence in that. So, the honest thing to do, the virtuous thing to do, is just to to doubt and to, to perpetuate unbelief. And the reality is, this section is going to show us that unbelief is never 
based primarily on a lack of knowledge. It's always based on a rejection of the knowledge that a person has. And it's based on a moral opposition to the truth. And I think you'll see that as we go through here. So look with me at chapter 6 and verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So where was Jesus coming away from? You kind of jump into this chapter here if you weren't with us. Where was he coming away from? Well, if you've been with us, you know he's been around the Sea of Galilee for a while in the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, it's almost been humorous because we've seen him go back and forth across the sea. It's almost like a ferry that he keeps taking back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we've seen him in the last several chapters. And so at this point, he decides... After these couple of miracles in chapter 5, he decides that he's going to move away from the Sea of Galilee and he's going to go home, back to the place that he grew up at, which is, is Nazareth. He's going to take a trip home. And so here's a little map. Hopefully it's pretty simple, but you can see here there's Nazareth and you can see the Sea of Galilee up there kind of toward the top right corner. And uh, he's going to take a trip here to Nazareth, about 25 miles. And again, keep in mind that this would have been a walking trip. So it would have taken several days for him to get there. Uh, This wasn't like an afternoon walk to get home. And so in in very typical fashion during this time period, it says in verse 1 that his disciples went with him. And that's one of the key things that we've learned about discipleship is that they're with Jesus. And so they go with him. They're learning of him and who he is as they experience his ministry. And so he arrives at home. And what do you think the first thing he does when he gets to his hometown is? Look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, let me try to let me try to paint this picture a little bit for you of what has happened here. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And remember... He didn't start his official ministry, wasn't baptized by John the Baptist until he was around 30 years of age, all right? So he had lived in Nazareth as a carpenter for quite a while, for his entire life up until that point. And if you know anything about Nazareth during this time, it is a very, very small town. Around 500 people probably lived in the little town of Nazareth. And so... As small towns go, Jesus would have been very well known, and his family would have been very well known in this little town, this little village of Nazareth. Also remember, you've got Jesus coming back home, and it's not like the people in Nazareth hadn't heard what had been going on. If flip back just probably a page or so to chapter 3 and verse 7, and remember... How, how broadly the word about Jesus had gone. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon, right? So this crowd from all over this region that is on this map on the screen, they had came to him. And so word about Jesus had gone far and wide. People knew what was happening around the Sea of Galilee. And so certainly at this point, word of the local boy and what had been going on had reached the little village of 500 people of Nazareth. They knew. And Jesus at this point was becoming, if not already, a national celebrity. I mean, if word about his miracles had traveled this far... 
Nearly everybody had heard about this guy and they were talking about him and what had been happening. So he was a national celebrity. And so he comes home and it's a little bit like the famous local boy coming home to his small hometown. The celebrity athlete returns to his small hometown and everybody would have known that he was coming And when he gets home, he immediately goes to the synagogue and he begins to do what he does best. And that is to teach in the synagogue. Now, look back at verse 2 and notice what it says here. You have to to notice the details sometimes. It says, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And I think it says he began to teach there because he didn't finish. Because he got going and they stopped him in the middle with their questions. They were so astonished and so amazed and so shocked by what they heard that they actually interrupted him. And the crowd started to murmur, and he couldn't even finish what he was teaching there. And they asked all these questions of one another. Look at the rest of verse 2. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, series of questions, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Now, these first three questions seem to be pretty, pretty good, a, a pretty reasonable response, like a decent thing to ask of Jesus as they're sitting there listening to him. And I think they probably were genuinely good questions. Let's think specifically about what they ask him first. You see, where did this man get these things? Basically, they're trying to think about where did his authority to teach in this way come from? We've seen Jesus in the synagogues teach, and the people respond amazed at his authority. Well, that's what they're asking here. How does he, how does he teach with such authority, with so much more authority than the scribes? And they ask this question because they knew him, and they knew his family, and they knew Jesus had never been formally trained by a rabbi. And that was one of the necessary pieces to becoming a teacher like this. He was a simple guy. He'd been a carpenter. He was basically a small-town, working-class individual, working-class man. And so they're like, where does he get this from? How is he doing this? Look at the second question they ask him. What is the wisdom given to him? I mean, they obviously see there's great wisdom in his teaching. I mean, this is good stuff that he's giving us. It makes sense. There's wisdom in it. Where does he get this? And then third, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Obviously, they've gotten wind of his miracles. They knew. He'd gone out. He taught. Word of his miracles had gone everywhere. Now, as you read those questions, I think Mark writes these so that you and I, as the readers, will will reflect on the answers to these questions. I mean, that's the whole point of our series. Who then is this? These type of questions, Mark wants us to go, yeah, how, how should we answer these questions when we think about Jesus and his ministry? What have we read up until this point in the Gospel of Mark that informs the answers to these questions? And so as you look at them, our answers would go something like this. Where did this man get these things? From God. His authority comes from God. What's the wisdom given to him? Well, it's God's wisdom. Obviously, we've seen that. How are such mighty works done by his hand? Well, they're done by his hand because he's the son of God. Those are the answers that we would give. We should give as readers to these questions. And so by asking these questions, 
The people of Nazareth acknowledge they know the truth about Jesus, don't they? They know. They see it in front of them. They know that he teaches with authority. They know that he teaches with wisdom. And they know that he's been working miracles. They have all the knowledge that they need to make a right assessment of Jesus Christ and his ministry. They know all the right things. They have the right information. And it's the same information that you and I have from reading the Gospel of Mark up until this point. So how do they respond? What do they do? Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So instead of focusing on what the questions in verse 2 reveal about Jesus, the answers to those questions, his wisdom comes from God, his authority comes from God, he does these mighty works by God, instead of thinking of Jesus in those terms, instead what they do is they turn their attention and they begin to think of him as they've always known him. They begin to think of him as He's the son of Mary. We've known this guy for a long time. He's the local boy. I remember when Jesus was running around in the streets. I remember when he was working in the carpenter shop. That's how they think of him. They're not rightly assessing who he is. And the end of verse 3 gives us the summary of their reaction. They took offense at him. They took offense at this. They knew the right things, but their reaction is not to believe. Their reaction is to take offense at Jesus and all the good things he's done and the miracles that he performs and the authority that he teaches with. They take offense at it. And this word here is the same root word that is translated stumbling block often in the New Testament. It's a stumbling block. It's like when you walk through your house in the early morning hours and it's dark and you trip over a toy and you fall to the ground. That's a stumbling block. They have the right facts, but they trip over their familiarity with Jesus and they won't let their knowledge turn to belief. And you see how I phrase that? They won't let their knowledge turn to belief. Instead, they go the opposite direction and their knowledge actually hardens their hearts against Jesus and it hardens their hearts into offense into a stumbling block. We've seen this before in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? Flip back to chapter 3 real quick. Chapter 3, you remember in this chapter, Jesus heals the man in front of the religious leaders in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He has a discussion with them about this, and he does the miracle right in front of them. They see it happen. They see this man made whole, and how do they respond? Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. That's their reaction. And it's a very similar reaction here in chapter 6. He's a stumbling block. They witnessed the healing in chapter 3, and then they decided that he needed to be killed for it. It's amazing. And this is where we, we circle back to our first description of unbelief. Unbelief rejects the knowledge that it has. Unbelief is not based on a lack of data. Okay? 
It's not based on a lack of data. It has all the information that it needs. Listen to this definition. Unbelief is a willful and sinful setting of oneself against a biblical teaching. It is willful and it is sinful. Now, I want to explain this in a little more detail from Romans chapter 1. Now, if you want to turn there, you can. I'll put it on the screen and read it to you. But this is explained very clearly here. Our issue with unbelief is not that we don't know enough. That's not the problem here. Romans chapter 1. Let me read this to you. If you want to turn there, you can to follow along, all right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You can even see in that language. They push the truth away. They don't want the truth. And here's the explanation. Here's what that suppression looks like. For, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. What can be known about God? What do people know about God just from living in this world? Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What is he saying? Look around you. Look at the world. Look at the design in the world. Look at creation. Look at the way it's made. And you can see and you know that there's a God And that you are accountable to him and he created this world. And it says there, they are without excuse. People know they have the knowledge that they need to respond to God and seek him. And they don't. They don't want to. And here's the explanation. For although they knew God, here's the problem. They knew about him. Unbelievers know that God is there. They may not vocally say that, but they know. The hardest atheist in the world knows that God is there. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's a sense in which everyone knows God exists And is powerful and that we're accountable to him. But that knowledge is not the same thing as faith. That knowledge can be suppressed and pushed down and pushed aside. Faith, according to Romans 1, is when we honor him. When we are thankful to him. When we rightly assess his authority and his sovereignty and his rule in the world. We give him the worship and honor that he deserves. But what we do, according to Romans 1, every single person in this room was born doing this, what we do is we exchange that. And we worship self and we worship other things. And that's unbelief. Unbelief is when we act like God doesn't exist. We know he's there and we act like he doesn't exist and we worship lesser things. And sometimes that unbelief, that tendency persists in our hearts, even as believers in some ways. Unbelief is the tendency of the human heart to say, if only God would do it this way. Or to say, I just can't believe in a God who would act like that. That is unbelief. It puts me in the driver's seat. 
And it says, I will be the evaluator. I will be the judge of how things should be. I will determine what is right and true and what should happen in the universe. That's what unbelief is. And it does that rather than taking God at his word and saying, this is reality. This is the way it should be. And I place myself under that and I accept his ways and his word. And as believers, you and I ought to be very careful in how we listen to and respond to the Bible and to God's word. In Mark chapter 6, the people stumbled over their familiarity with Jesus, right? I mean, that was the issue, I think, for them. But what about God's word do you stumble over? Do I stumble over? What about God's word is difficult for me to obey and to live out? What has God made clear in his word that we reject? And the thing about rejecting it is we very often don't even realize it. And that's the scary thing about Romans 1 and unbelief, claiming to be wise. It's like your reason gets flipped upside down and you can't even think logically anymore when you're persisting in unbelief. Now, as a churchgoer, you would never say, well... I, don't, I just don't accept God's word in that area. I accept it everywhere else, but I just don't accept it there. You never say that. I would never say that. But often, our lives will show that there are areas where we persist in unbelief. And we reject what God has clearly said in his word. We reject the promises and the warnings in scripture. And sometimes we even reject the way the story is laid out and impacts our understanding of who we are as human beings, and the way we're to live in this world. And so what I'm saying here is we ought to come to God's word with a readiness and eagerness to hear and to put ourselves under his word and to respond in faith and obedience. We ought not to come as evaluators of his word as to whether we're going to listen and obey or whether we're going to continue to reject it. There shouldn't be any hint of offense in our hearts as to what God says in his word. And so, to summarize this whole point, unbelief rejects the knowledge that it has. It knows. It's not a lack of data. Unbelief rejects the knowledge that it has and instead trusts self rather than God. And because of that rejection, unbelief, this brings us to our second description, fails to enter the kingdom. I mean, this is the ultimate result of that rejection, that moral suppression of the truth. Fails to enter the kingdom, verses 4 to 6. So Jesus sees their offense in verse 3. Flip back to Mark 6 if you're not there and look at verse 4. Jesus responds. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, And in his own household. What is Jesus getting at with this little proverb? This little pithy saying that he gets here. Well, it's sort of the same thing in some ways as our saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm sure you've heard that before. And you would think that those who were physically closest to Jesus, who in some ways knew him the best, they had grown up with him, they had seen him, In his carpenter shop, they had seen his family, they had seen him as a little boy. They had the opportunity to be with Jesus. 
And now they've heard the truth. They've heard the miracles. They've heard his teaching. They even know his teaching is with wisdom and authority. And you would think that those people would be the most likely to respond with faith. But that isn't the case. Often, it works the opposite. It's those who would seem to have the most access and be the closest to Christ who ultimately reject his word and trust in self and respond in unbelief. And if you continue, as these people did, to know Jesus to a certain extent, to hear his word, to know about the news, the truth about him, to witness his works, if you continue to not respond in faith to what you see here, you will inoculate yourself to the reality of who he is. It's almost like a vaccine that gets into you and keeps you from responding and hardens your heart in unbelief. And look at the results in verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed him. Now, this is an interesting verse. And it's, it's really important that you remember something about Christ's healing ministry. And this is something we've talked about several times before, and we talked it through again last week. Jesus' miracles are not performances that are done only to demonstrate his power. It's not just proving that he is God, although they certainly are that. But his miracles teach us about the kingdom. They teach us what the kingdom is like. And that's why faith is so important to Jesus' work here. Because faith is how you enter the kingdom. And it connects you, as we talked about last week, to the kingdom. Look back at chapter 5, verse 34. Remember this? And he said to her, the woman that had been healed, daughter, your faith has made you well. Remember that? And it's not sort of a a faith healer sort of thing where he's saying, well, if you just believe enough, then you'll be healed. No, her faith is what connected her to the kingdom. And Christ's kingdom is a place of wholeness and wellness. And in the future, when we enter his kingdom, there will be no more sickness or pain or tragedy. And there will be no more sin. And we'll be whole and fully human as we were intended to be. And so this miracle with the woman is a demonstration that faith brings us into that kingdom, a place of wholeness and wellness. And so when you reject Jesus's ministry, when you don't come in faith, it keeps you out of the kingdom and you fail to enter where you need to go. And that's why... Mark explains this in verse 5. That's why he could do no mighty work there, except for maybe a few people believed, and he could do a few miracles there. And so he doesn't do them there because they're not placing their faith in him, and they're not going to enter the kingdom if they persist in their unbelief. He's not going to do a bunch of miracles for people who have rejected his ministry and rejected the arrival of his kingdom. He's not going to do a bunch of miracles for them just to try to convince them that he's God. I mean, that's not what his ministry is all about. If he did that, that would put them in the place of evaluation. And that would give them the authority and the right to decide, okay, is he real or not real? Is he the son of God or not the son of God? No, The call is to respond with humility, repentance, and faith and submit yourself to what Jesus says. Take him at his word. 
That's the call of faith. And when that happens, you enter the kingdom and receive the benefits and anticipate the future benefits. Without faith, entrance into the kingdom is impossible. Why? Well, faith, think about it this way. Faith is a relational term. All of us function in our daily lives by faith. God's not just looking for people to know that he exists. And so he doesn't just write, I am Yahweh in the sky so that people will know he exists. Faith is important. You can't have a genuine business relationship with someone without faith, without trust in them. And it's the same way with God. Faith is a relational term. And it brings us into a relationship with God. It's where we know him intimately and relationally. And so faith is so important because it brings us into the kingdom, into the covenant relationship with God. So God gives us his word, he gives us his son, tells us to believe and to trust in him so that we'll enter that covenant relationship and so that we'll rightly assess ourselves and rightly assess who he is and believe who he is. That's why he proclaims the kingdom the way he does in chapter 1 and verse 15. Repent and believe. That's the access point to the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom means entering a covenant relationship with God in which he's the king and I'm the servant, and I take him at his word. And rejection of that, failure to believe that, keeps you on the outside and keeps you persisting in unbelief. Ultimately, unbelief is a rejection of God's grace, it's a rejection of his goodness, and it's a rejection of his authority in my life. So that keeps you out of the kingdom. And look at the summary in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I mean, think about the Gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus do miracles and people marvel at him. Now, we see the people's unbelief and Jesus marvels at their unbelief. It's the opposite here. It's the only time we see him amazed. And it's in regards to their unbelief. Here's a good definition of unbelief, another one for you to chew on. Unbelief, what they're doing here is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. And that's what happens here. They, they know the right things, they see the miracles, and they say, nope, we don't want that. We're not interested in that. And that's what happens all over the world today, doesn't it? People take offense It's some aspect of biblical teaching. Maybe the picture of Christ that's given in scripture and they reject it. And they make a decision to live their life as if there is no God. And rejection of biblical truths hardens the heart and stiffens the will. And over time, the unbelief persists and it grows more deeply ingrained to the point where it is a lifestyle. It's a way of being in the world and it actually makes sense. You think you are wise to persist in unbelief. And that way of being in the world will not allow one to enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ because we come to him on his terms. Submitting to his authority, acknowledging who he is and who we are. So how do we move to faith? How does that happen? Well, as I'm talking this through this morning, I hope you're not sitting there thinking, well, I'm just smarter than somebody else. I'm just a, I'm just a better, more moral person than the next guy. And that's why I exercised faith. 
It's not like any of us were able to figure this out on our own and make the right call regarding Jesus and who he is. That's not the case at all. What's the difference between someone who persists in unbelief and who responds in faith? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, speaking of the gospel of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here's the difference. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What changes from where Jesus is a stumbling block and he's folly and it's stupid to think about a crucified Messiah? What changes you from that to the point where you see the power and the wisdom of God in orchestrating this plan? What makes that difference? It's being called. It's God reaching into your blind, aggressively unbelieving heart and giving you life. And saying, look this way and believe and trust in my word. That's the difference. It's the call of God. And if you are believing this morning, if you have faith this morning, your response, my response should be nothing but to affirm my thankfulness to God for the work that he has done. He is gracious and he is good. And someone spoke the truth of the gospel to me. And I responded in faith. Because God called and opened my eyes to see the glory of Christ. And so the question for us as we end this morning goes back to the the title of this sermon. Who then is this? Is he precious or is he a stumbling block? How do you respond to the truths of Christ that you see in the first six chapters of Mark? What is the identity of Jesus? Is he precious to you? Is he valuable? Is he worthy to be trusted or is he a stumbling block? Is he something that's strange and odd and to be rejected? And every person has to answer that question. And every person will answer that question, whether they even realize it or not. And I think the scary thing is that you can answer that with your words one way and then reject it and answer it a different way with your life. So my question for you as we end this morning is, which answer is your life proclaiming concerning the identity of Jesus Christ? Is he precious Or is he offensive? Is he a stumbling block? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. Thankful for the call that you have given to those in this room who believe to open our eyes. We're not worthy of that. We didn't make that, that good choice on our own. But you spoke into the darkness of our hearts and brought light and gave us life. And we're so thankful for that. Help us to rejoice in that even now as we come to your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we finish up, we're going to do what we do uh, once a month here, the first Sunday of every month. We're going to take the Lord's table.